0: Hey gang, it's John. Thanks for listening to another episode of book club. This one's extra special to us because I think as most of you know, I'm pretty good friends with the author. It's Brian J. Cramp. I think of him as BJ or beach. He just wrote it and uh, his first book and it's coming out this week. This band has no past how cheap trick became cheap trick. I know we have a lot of friends in this community. I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of the same people listen to a lot of the same podcasts within this community. So you've you probably know BJ, you probably know his podcast, Rock and Or Roll. You've probably heard him on here before or me on there before. I really love BJ. He Brian, well, I don't know. I don't know what he wants to be called when he's when we're talking about being an official author and everything. I'm just gonna keep going, BJ. I'm really grateful for his friendship. I love him a lot, and I'm especially proud of him that he actually wrote his first book about his favorite band. And now that book is to be shared with all of us. It's really the origin story of Cheap Trick, obviously from the title. How they got started, how they how they found each other, how they became a band, what bands were they in before, that kind of stuff. It's great. And uh, I love Cheap Trick, but I love I love BJ even more. So I'm really glad that this time I got to talk to one of my friends about a major, major accomplishment in their life that we all get to enjoy. I hope you feel that way, too. He picked ELO, ELO, whatever. He picked ELO Kitties as his intro song. Yeah, here he is, our good buddy, Beach Okay, first and foremost, BJ, when did you decide to write this book? You've never written a book before. What gives you the cojones to think, I'm the guy to write this particular book? I have to do it. Why?
1: Well, I, I am BJ Cajones. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: That's
1: true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like, it, you know, the original impetus was to pitch a 33 and a third book about the first album because you could just, you know, send them a pitch. So that was how I originally started working on it. Of course, it all kind of grew out of doing the podcast and interviewing, actually starting to interview people, which is not something I really probably ever saw myself doing. But when I started interviewing people for my podcast and then we started interviewing people for cheap talk, the cheap trick podcast, and and I realized you could find people and they would talk to you. You know, like the the other cheap trick book that's out there, Mike Hayes' book, Reputation is a Fragile Thing, that came out in nineteen ninety eight. So he didn't it's so much easier it was so much easier for me because I could find these people with the internet and actually talk to to these people that mike hayes it would have in the 90s it would have been incredibly difficult for him to find these people and talk to them Uh, especially since he was over in england so i had that going for me and yeah so it it all started with interviewing people and some of the earliest people i interviewed were people who because i was kind of focused on the first album but I thought for, you know, those 33 and the third books, a lot of them will tell the story of the band, mm-hmm. too. So I thought I'll, like, tell the st- some of the story of what happened before the record. But, uh, you know, I started interviewing people who worked at Epic Records. Those were some of the first people I interviewed. Or, like, Paula Asher who designed the album cover.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and, but then I talked to Chris Crow, who designed the cheap created the Cheap Trick logo. Mm-hmm. But but one of the earliest people I talked to, Jim Charney, who worked at Epic Records, he's the guy who linked me up with Ken Adamani, who was their manager. And that's when it started changing from a 33 and a third book to a, something that was much more... That just expanded the scope of what I yeah. could do. And that's when I thought, I'm not going to write a 33 and a third book. I'm going to write a real book. But then okay. it's like... I. Yeah, I probably thought for a long time I would self-publish. I don't know if I ever, ever imagined early on that I would actually have a real publisher. So that's a, that may, yeah. that's a whole different ballgame, too. So
0: so let me ask you about this. I, I've read a few of the 33 and a third books, and my assumption is that whoever writes those are at least some kind of existing published writer, no? You, yeah, most of them know? are. So no offense to you, but I mean, if no one's ever heard you and you write to thirty three and a third and say I got an idea for a cheap trick book, are they taking that seriously? Do they? I don't know how the process works. Do they just take accept kind of invites from or uh, you know pitches from anybody and see what tickles their fancy?
1: Okay. Yeah, they accept them from anybody, and you have to. You're supposed. Back when I was first thinking about doing it, I think you were supposed to write a chapter, but now they just want you to write five pages. To submit oh. five pages of any, anywhere uh-huh. from the book. So anybody okay. can submit one. They only accept submissions at certain times. Like you have to okay. wait until it's open, but anybody can actually make a submission. That's the thing about Jawbone. The, my publisher is they're one of the only publishers that you can, that will even talk to you without an agent. Mm. So most, most publishers, you have to go through an agent, but. Okay. Okay jawbone and also ecw that published van halen rising yeah you don't you don't need an agent those are like the only two i think so
0: huh so you get this german idea i'm going to write the 33 and a third as it starts taking on um getting bigger in scope and in participation from other people you think well this is actually a bigger book I, i gotta do this on my own how is it your relationship with greg Renoff that kind of points you in the direction of finding a publisher how do you even go about doing that
1: well greg was definitely an inspiration because my book is kind of cheap trick rising yeah you know in in a way i mean i was going to submit it to ecw uh, eventually that that greg's publisher but um uh, stephen roth is a is a guy who works in marketing Mm -hmm. and worked with jawbone and um Was a listener to Cheap Talk,
2: and he was the person.
1: He was the person who told me that Jawbone might be interested in something like this, and so I was able to submit a couple of chapters to the managing editor over at Jawbone, the guy who actually makes the decision. Uh And once he had those chapters, he asked for a couple more. Basically, by the point I was talking to Jawbone, I had a completed draft of an entire book. Basically I'd already done so much of the work by the mm-hmm. time there was a publisher. So I had, you know, it's like the, the saying, uh, what is it? Opportunity equals preparation plus timing or whatever. Yeah. You know, I, oh, I, I right. had it, you know, I, I pretty much had a done book. I mean, that must've been, that must've been helpful in terms of jawbone, you know, considering publishing it is, it was pretty much already done, even though it's interesting that um, once I got a publisher, that really changed the dynamic between Bunny Carlos because, you know, Ken Adamani, who was Cheap Trick's manager from the very beginning, I've when I first started talking to him, eventually he brought Bunny Carlos into the project, too. So, mm-hmm. once I got a publisher, all of a sudden Bunny Carlos and Ken Adamani were a lot more forthcoming with information, <laughs> which means that the book that ended up being published is much better than the book that they agreed to publish in the first place. (laughs) Right. So actually getting a publisher made it a better book than it probably would have been without a publisher, because I don't think I had a three and a half hour meeting years ago with Ken and bunny. So I had a lot of input from bunny from that meeting, but I think that was all I was going to get from bunny. Until I got a publisher and then that changed and he answered pretty much any question I threw at him. You know, he he didn't have much to say about a lot of them, but sure. he, you know, I got a ton more information from Bunny after I got a publisher that I probably wouldn't have gotten if I published it myself. So So. even if, if Jawbone had never come around,
0: you were still determined to write this book. You were just willing to do it independently.
1: Yeah, and it's really easy now to to publish it yourself through Amazon yeah. and um, Julian Gill was going to help me if it came to oh, that. Sure. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, cause Julian has published a bunch of books that way. So he was going to yeah. help me. <clears throat> Julian was going to help me with the process. So I was definitely going to do it. If I didn't get a publisher, I was just going to do it that way. But of course, having a publisher, you know, I've been getting, I got reviewed in classic rock magazine, record collector yeah. magazine, You know, stuff like that doesn't really isn't probably isn't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we'll see what happens going forward when the book comes out on Tuesday. I mean, I'm really hoping that maybe Eddie Trunk is going to have me on or who knows what might happen I think having a real publisher opens up a lot more Absolutely, it does. possibilities like that. So Absolutely. When you
0: start saying all these names and everything, I just get the biggest smile and I get goosebumps for you. because yeah. I'm just imagining the guy who's been my friend for a while and suddenly he births this book, his first ever, and people care about it. Joe Elliott's reading it. Martha Quinn's talking about it. It's just amazing how this
1: snowball has happened to you. Yeah, I was trying to explain to my mom yesterday what Classic Rock Magazine is. I mean, (laughs) you know, it's the biggest magazine in the world for this kind of music at this point. I mean, I've been reading it for, God, it's probably been almost 20 years. I mean, I used to have a subscription to it years ago. I haven't really bought the magazine in a long time. But the fact that my book is reviewed in there is pretty mind-blowing. I mean, it definitely is. A dream come true I mean it really is so it really is
0: I'm so happy for you so what made you decide then when you did you always know I guess because you were gonna do the 33 and a third on the debut album your mind was already sort of putting barriers around the beginning of the band it wasn't intended to be you know a career, a complete career arc um, and, and again going back to Greg Renoff is was part of that his influence like i did you know yeah. i did the van halen rising and talking about those early stages is more fun or more interesting or easier i don't know what made you decide to to narrow it down to what
1: you did yeah definitely the fact that greg Renoff was successful with doing that you know that definitely made it made it seem a make probably you know probably put that concept in my head or just made it seem yeah. like a possibility and also i mean writing a a book about the band's entire career would have been a, an entirely different monster to try to tackle. Oh, yeah. And I really wanted to pin down all these stories and all this, you know, you've heard a lot of stories about, oh, we used to be called the Manchurian Blues Band. And then, you know, <laughs> people know that they moved out to Philadelphia, but nobody really knows. Like, I didn't really know about the Artemis, the club that they worked mm-hmm. at, probably until we talked to stookie the singers of sick man of europe for cheap talk but when i like i did it i when i talked to hank ransom uh this guy who played when bunny broke his arm in 76 hank hank ransom came out to play drums with them for like a month and a half and that's all i knew about hank that's what i wanted to talk to hank about turns out when rick first moved to philadelphia with Stukey. And got a job. They both got jobs at this club called Artemis. Hank Ransom worked at Artemis, mm. and then Hank Ransom played with them. And I didn't even know that, mm-hmm. you know. And so nobody really knew that. Who knew the cheap trick story? Um, so just being able to tell the story about Philadelphia and about Artemis, because Artemis was this club that they all were... You know, Rick Nielsen was a bartender, uh, and Tom Peterson was a busboy or something mm-hmm. at this club and they had a band out there bunny eventually moved out there too so they had this band in philadelphia that was basically cheap trick with a different singer which mm-hmm. was stooky who was in todd rungan's band naz before that so i that's you know that's the kind of thing i really wanted to pin down was this story of them out in philadelphia and, right. uh, so yeah i talked to a couple other guys who worked at artemis i i had i played phone tag with the guy who owned artemis david carroll Mm -hmm. and he was kind of like hemming and hawing about talking to me and then he passed away oh and i never actually got an interview with him but oh i found some really great descriptions in old newspapers of what artemis was like and talked to you know other people that worked there Mm -hmm. with them and i i I got some good stories, and uh, that's great. I, you know, was able to tell that Philadelphia story, especially with help from Bunny. Yeah. Too. Um,
0: one of the things that I, the structure of your book, I think is really effective because it's part kind of oral history and part narrative, and so um, I'm, I'm I can't remember specifics, but you'll be saying something like, you know, when they were in Philadelphia, they opened for this band, which included these, you know. Tommy Johnny Jimmy Ricky whatever and then you'll put it you'll insert a quote from one of those guys that you just talked about to give context and to confirm everything you just said and I wondered when we talked before you had mentioned about keeping this spreadsheet of quotes and I don't know if you want to call them like historic issues things uh, benchmarks in chronological order, that needed to be told and referred to and included in the book. That sounds like almost as much work as the book itself. Tell us about the spreadsheet.
1: Yeah, I had two different documents that I worked from. Is that I had a, a, a chronological, because I, I, you know, after I did the whole, all the research and the interviews, I had just tons of quotes from newspapers, magazines, podcasts, the guys being interviewed on YouTube, just interviews I found on the internet and also people I interviewed. And I took all of that. This one document was only quotations from sources or interviews. And I pretty much put all of that in chronological order. And then I also created a timeline where I started with significant dates in the cheap trick story, but then I filled it in with historically significant dates or culturally significant dates Mm -hmm. so that i could see what matched up and i could just reference you know when cheap trick were playing in this club on this night this is the same night that saturday night live debuted yeah or whatever so that i could just make for for context i love that i could make references like that so yeah i had the 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 document of quotes in order and then i had the, the timeline and that those are the two things i worked from Um, I could remember just spending a lot of time with my Chromebook on the couch because I had all these Google Docs. I wrote this entire book on Google Docs because, yeah, because, you know, my original idea was if I write this on the computer, I have to have it backed up. And then I thought, what if I just write it on Google Docs? Then it's always backed up. I mean, I would download it a lot, you know, download a PDF. Yeah. Yeah, I just wrote it in Google Docs because then it was always backed up you know i didn't have to worry <laughs> about my computer crashing or whatever yeah perfect idea. but yeah i had tons of good you know every time i would transcribe an interview i would do it on google docs and i would just have all these documents and eventually i just went through and took copy to pasted everything it made this uh-huh. chronological thing which took a long time to do i mean also transcribing interviews is not necessarily fun yeah especially yeah i mean just pausing rewinding trying to get the exact wording you know i I think that's why we're in podcasting not uh journalism so well i didn't i didn't transcribe my entire interviews i would transcribe just stuff i thought i was going to use but i did end up going back and listening to a lot of them and finding more stuff that i ended up using that i hadn't transcribed at first you know so but yeah, transcribing is not fun
0: yeah, <laughs> at that's all what I hear.
1: That's what I hear. Um,
0: I want to mention yeah. a couple of the historic points that come up in the book. First of all, and you probably get asked about these a lot, but they are the ones that really struck me. First of all, one of Rick's earlier bands was the band that was going to be opening for Otis Redding on the night that he died in the plane crash.
1: Correct? Yeah. Yeah. The Grim Reapers, which yeah. is... A- ended up being a tragically ironic name no late. kidding yeah yeah was was that in wisconsin yeah it was in madison and it was That's at a, right. the, a ken adam he owned the club the factory oh. uh, which was on gorham street i mean i used to live within blocks of of where that club was you yeah. know walked past it a million times where the building um yeah the and the lake that Otis's plane crashed into is five minutes away from where I am right now, Lake Monona. Oh, my gosh.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, who knew that? Who knew that there was a connection between Cheap Trick and Otis Redding? And then another of the things that really struck me was, remind me, so did Jeff Beck buy one of Rick's guitars early on or borrow it? Or what was the story there?
1: Yeah, he bought it. Rick, uh, this is one of Rick's favorite stories to tell. So he tells it pretty much in every interview. Does he? (laughs) But yeah, but Rick saw Jeff Beck at Kinetic Playground, which was a really, it's kind of a legendary club in Chicago. Uh, That's actually the club where the Grim Reapers played and Epic came and saw them and then decided to sign them. And that's when Epic made them change their name to Fuse. But yeah, he saw Jeff Beck. And then he saw Jeff Becks roadie drop his guitar and like break the neck. So he gave Jeff Becks roadie his number. And he's like, you know, if Jeff needs a guitar and then I think Jeff was in Philadelphia. Yeah. When he called Rick, this is in what, probably 68. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Beck called him up and then Rick flew to Philadelphia with like five guitars. But also I talked to this guy, Mike Myers, so mike myers was craig myers brother craig myers was the guitar player in in fuse Uh with rick and tom but also mike myers had been in the band the bull weevils that tom peterson was in with craig myers you know before tom ended up linking up with rick Mm -hmm. so mike my and mike myers also worked at rick's dad's music store with rick Mm there's a lot of good quotes for Mike Myers. He's in the story quite a bit because also he, when he was in the army, he was over in Germany and Tom Peterson went and visited him in Germany. You know, that was a great thing because I always knew this story about Tom having been in Germany, but I had no idea why. Right. And then when I talked to Mike Myers, he told me why, because Tom came over there and was living with him. So yes. And also Mike Myers flew with Rick to Philadelphia when he sold Jeff Beck, the guitar, so when I talked to Mike, I had no idea that Mike was with him until I talked to him. And that's so I, th- I think I have it in my book that their plane tickets were like twenty one dollars or something. That's I remember that, yeah. That's because ah. Mike told Mike told me that that yeah, wild. that's great. And and Rick talks about how Ronnie Wood was walking around with like a tea set that he just bought or something yeah. with it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, I love yeah. that.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Something going back to to the to the structure of the book. I was curious when you were talking earlier about having to submit uh, chapters. I don't know if you ended up having to do that, but are you write do you write a book like this in order or do you write chapter 4 and then chapter 20 and then chapter 1 and then chapter 12, you know what I mean? Like are you are you do you have a structure in your mind that you go from point A to point Z or are you kind of bouncing around filling in holes like a puzzle?
1: I think I pretty much wrote it in order, but of course, I just ended up with like a a skeletal version of the book that was very much fleshed out mm-hmm. and I mean, if you went back and looked at some of my early drafts, it's just completely different. I mean, you mentioned the oral history aspect, which um that's something i eventually I don't know if I've ever seen another book like this that is this much of a mixture of i know I thought prose and oral histories so, but that's just what I landed on because it's genius. I did I couldn't make it an entire oral history but at the same time I had so many interviews with just really good quotes mm-hmm. that just seemed like they should be used. Mm-hmm. So but the funny thing is what the what I first submitted to the publisher all of my quotes from Rick Tom and Robin I had presented in the oral history format as well. Oh and uh, my editor was like you can't really do that in oral history it really has to be uh, unique uh, new mm. interviews. Yeah. I mean, you could do it sparingly. Like mm-hmm. um, I, I was confused about it. Cause one of the most recent books I had read like that was um, nothing but a good time. Have you read that? It's a, that's a great book about no. basically about the hair metal
0: yeah.
1: scene that came out like last year. Okay. And, no, and they do, you know, they do use pretty many quotes in there that are from because it's a complete oral history okay and they do use quite a few quotes that are from other interviews but i guess it's if you went broke it down by percentage it's a pretty small percentage Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so the editor was like we've got to figure out some other way that's why all the quotes from rick and tom and robin and even bunny that are from other sources are you know just put into the Sure. Pro prose part instead of being presented like the oral history right. part. Okay. But that that was a job to have to do. Because I had my original draft, I had all those quotes in the oral history format. So then I yeah. had to go back and some of them I just didn't even use the quote and just use the information, or else I just wove the quote into, you know, the prose sure. parts of it.
0: Sure. Okay. So as you're writing the book, what is your and you're doing the research what is your favorite discovery is it oh, a story uh, someone told or is it solving a mystery what is it
1: well first uh, going back to what you just asked about um oh doing about, it in order but yeah but doing it in order the a uh, f- funny thing is uh <laughs> the first chapters i wrote were way way too long because I just didn't really know exactly what I was doing. At some point, I did some research, and I was like, how long is a chapter supposed to be? And uh-huh. found however many words, I don't remember exactly. I think it's like uh, 6,000 words or 8,000 words. Yeah, like like the average length a chapter should be. And my chapters were like three three times too long. And then I had to break everything up. I had to break all my chapters up into, you know smaller chapters and find new start points and end points i mean it you know it's a it's a comedy of errors i didn't exactly <laughs> know what i was doing so it turned out that what these chapters i had at first but then it also was kind of a blessing in disguise because then i was like oh i have a lot more chapters than i thought i uh-huh. had You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah um okay. that, so that was funny yeah so it yeah it's pr- if I, I still have, you know, I still have those files, and it would be hilarious to compare what I had early on to what I have, what the finished product is. But um, That'd be wild!
0: I'm sure yeah. everyone's books look like that. It's just a oh,
1: collection yeah. of random thoughts and papers. That, well, that and especially, work. I mean, that's how I've always written. Is for me, it's get get something to work with, and then just rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. Just yeah eventually hone it and you know make it as good as possible but i would be embarrassed for anyone to read whatever my first draft draft is you know
0: i want to go back to the question about discoveries but before i do when you um how many after the publisher gets a
1: hold of it how many times how many edits then do you have to go through there ended up being two but i think i probably really annoyed my editor because He edited the book and sent it back to me. And then I went nuts and rewrote it again, like the whole whole book. And then he had to edit it again, basically. Probably annoyed the shit out of him. And it was part of me not really knowing exactly, you know, the process. I think because I even he put in all these um, notations and things that I didn't really know understand what they were. And I think I ended up taking them out and then he had to redo it. I mean, I think I probably drove my editor nuts. I mean, I was submitting changes and change because there came a point where I submitted the book and then anything that was going to be changed, he had to do, I couldn't do it anymore. I just had to email him what I wanted him to change. Right. And I sent him lots of emails <laughs> with changes. <laughs> and then he, I even changed two pages when it was already sent to the printer and was supposed to be locked because I got a new, a new contact. Uh So I think I probably drove my editor completely nuts, but you know, I, I think he also appreciated that I really cared and really wanted it to be as good as possible. And just, I could, I couldn't stop working on it. You know, with something like this, you have to have, eventually he just said no more. I mean, it was funny because there, I have an email from my editor where he said, you have to tell Ken Adamani no more because Ken, <laughs> Ken, Ken Adamany would keep sending me stuff. He would just, cause he keeps finding stuff in his garage. He's got all these yeah. boxes and he would send me a new picture of some document and I'd be like, Oh, I got to put this in there. <laughs> and finally my editor was like, you have to tell Ken the book's done. We can't make <laughs> any more changes. This is the last time. <laughs> That's hilarious. But even after that, I got him to change two more pages because I finally got in contact with somebody I'd try to get in contact with forever and um had to get some of this information in. And then he Ooh. told me he oh, it was Helene. It was the daughter of Marshall Mintz who was he was a photographer who took pictures of the band in like 75 and he ended up committing suicide. And so actually it's cheap tricks. First single Oh candy is about him. Okay. And when I had tried to talk to his daughter for years, and also I had contacted his sister and she had said she would talk to his daughter and get back to me. And then she never got back to me. I mean, it's a difficult thing when you're talking to people who, this is a person who committed suicide but i wanted to understand i wanted to be able to tell his story if possible sure. or sure and i just i had like the newspaper article about when he was found and stuff like and i had you know some other stuff but when i got some quotes from his daughter about what happened i really felt it was important to get it in yeah but the book was supposed to be locked and so yeah i'm sure my editor loved getting that email but he said <laughs> He said you could ch- it, you could change two pages. It has to fit in with the two pages. It can't like spill over at all. It can't yeah. change anything else. So I had to you know cut some. St- there were some quotes from Bunny about another photo shoot they had done with that with that photographer that I took out and stuff so that I could fit in some of this information from her. But I managed to pull it off wow. uh, because it was it was very important to get it in there. No kidding and. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that they let me do it because it was way, it was last minute, like a week later, I probably wouldn't even have been able to do it. So wild. Yeah. Okay. Tell me your favorite discovery. God, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, one of the best things was, uh, I mentioned Hank ransom earlier who, when Bunny broke his arm, Hank came and played. They actually played with two drummers. Bunny played one arm, then Hank played. And they had two drummers on stage for like a month and a half. Actually, when the people from Epic came to see them and decided to sign them, that's when they were playing with the the two drummers. So Hank, when I talked to Hank, he had told me that there was this article that Rick Nielsen had written, but he couldn't say that he wrote it, so he put Hank's daughter's name on it. Mm -hmm. His daughter's name is Heather Ransom. Uh, Also, Hank had told me that Surrender was about Heather. So these are two of the best stories in the book. And I talked to Heather. I love, there's a quote from Heather about Surrender that I really love. Very articulate and thoughtful. Because when I asked Bunny about Surrender being about Heather, Bunny was like, yeah you know I think there was a story when we lived in Philadelphia where where Hank's daughter caught him and his wife on the couch and that's not <laughs> the part of surrender that I was thinking that uh no that was about Heather but that's what Bunny said but going back to the article Eric. that Rick the article that Rick wrote where it said it was by Heather Ransom I just had this story from Hank but I never was able to find that article I didn't know what Hank didn't know anything about where the article was or, you know, when it was, you know, all he knew was that there was some article Rick wrote and said it was written by Heather Ransom. Mm -hmm. And then really late in the process, I got, I think Clive Palmer, this Clive Palmer is a guy who helped me a lot with some of this. He especially had been obsessed with collecting the dates, all the dates Mm -hmm. that the band played. And he had put together a partial list, and I had worked with Clive and with Ken Adamany of really putting together a pretty comprehensive list of dates that the band played, you know, in the early days in the clubs. And I think it was Clive who sent me this. It was a fan club. It was like a photocopy that Adamany had sent out to the members of their fan club with like a packet, you know. Mm-hmm. There was, and it was an article. It was a photocopy of an article, and I'm looking at it, and it says Heather Ransom, and it was yeah, you know, it was like a lightning bolt, yeah. because this is this is like four or five years after Hank had told me that story, but when I saw the name Heather Ransom, I was like the one person in the world <laughs> who was gonna know right, right. that Rick Nielsen wrote this fucking art, and it's written as if it's like from the point of view of like a teenage fan female fan of the it's like when you know rick wrote this article it's hilarious it's really funny (laughs) that rick wrote it and also then i now then i knew from this photocopy that the article was from lively times which was a like a local rockford paper Uh and so i messaged one of the guys who published lively times on facebook and he just wrote back rick wrote it (laughs) (laughs) so then i had confirmation from the lively times guy too yeah rick so that that's that's one of my favorite okay things that that that, that's that came out of this was that and then of course the patty smith story that i got from yeah. bunny is also one of my favorite
0: tell it summarize it for us first.
1: and oh, and this is one of those things that bunny told me after i got a publisher that i never even would have and also this is one of those things because that's the thing about doing something like this, you don't know the best questions to ask. I True. I didn't know I didn't ask Bunny tell me the Patti Smith story. I had no idea this had ever happened, and so Bunny just happened to mention it. Bunny has never told anyone this probably in you know 40 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just happened to ask Bunny, you know, tell me about recording at the record plant, what it was like at the record plant where they recorded the first album in New York? And then he's like, oh, yeah, I remember the receptionist told us that Patti Smith came in there and tore a picture off the wall and tore it into a million pieces. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it turns out, because Jack Douglas produced their first album, and he had just finished producing Radio Ethiopia, the second Patti Smith album. But when she heard the mix, she didn't like it. She was, wasn't happy with it, but she couldn't get a, she couldn't get a hold of Jack Douglas because he was already working with Cheap Trick. So when she came to the record plant looking for Jack Douglas and she was pissed off <laughs> and she knew that he wasn't around cause he, cause he was probably, maybe that was what he was doing pre-production cause he went to Madison to do pre-production with cheap trick. And she's pissed cause the, I think the story of radio Ethiopia is she got Jack Douglas to produce it cause she wanted it to be more commercial and get, get on the radio. And here she gets the mix back from it and her, probably her attitude was he rushed it because he wants to get to work on this. Next uh, sure. Yeah. So she's pissed off and then she turns her out and there's a picture of the band that, that he's working with that she's pissed about. So she just grabs it off the wall and tears it up, throws it on that's the awesome. floor. Yeah. That's I mean, awesome. that's yeah. That's just classic. Classic story.
0: You quoted Jack Douglas a few times in the book. Did you have access to him
1: or were those <laughs> taken from other sources? yeah no he wouldn't he just ignored me yeah which and you know he on the
0: podcast a few times
1: yeah he did the same thing that doug broad so doug broad wrote a book a year or two ago called they just seem a little weird which is a book about aerosmith kiss cheap trick and stars and of course jack douglas i mean aerosmith you know obviously everybody knows his connection to aerosmith but also he produced stars first couple albums and produced Cheap. so Obviously, in that book, Jack Douglas is a huge figure, and he wouldn't even talk to Doug. And Doug oh. brought as a you know a long resume of working for sure. Spin and TV Guide and everything else. So I don't know what Jack Douglas's deal huh. is, but he won't apparently won't talk to anybody. Okay. Well, good and though. I tried many times, yeah. in fact, even like I would see him comment on something on Facebook and I would just reply to his comment and yeah. I kept trying to get him to talk to me, but he just ignored me. He never even acknowledged my existence. So, wow. okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's done that, to but trying to get him on here at yeah. the same time, a lot through my research, a lot of what Jack says is just not accurate. Oh, <laughs> he's got a lot of stories. He tells that okay. uh, are, are don't, true. don't seem to be very okay. accurate. Good to so, know. Good to you know. know, there was a thing that came out like last year on YouTube. That was amazing that I got a lot of good stuff from Jack. It was, um, who was it? It was Linda Perry. Mm. Um, I think it was, what's the Mike Portnoy. And can't remember the fourth part, and then Jack Douglas and they were supposedly they were talking about Buddha uh-huh. but they just ended up talking about a lot of stuff. And I remember I got some really great quotes from Jack oh, Douglas from that, okay. but there's, you know, there's tons of, of yeah. sources. That's one part of the book that I cut down. I, cause I really go pretty in depth on Jack Douglas's story. Cause I thought it was, he, you know, he's very important figure in the cheap trick story but i even cut that down quite a bit from what i originally had i probably went i think i had like nine pages about jack douglas at one point huh. and i th- I think i pared it down but the beginning of that chapter i pretty much tell his whole story as far as how he got into producing yeah and and everything okay uh,
0: interesting i have one more question about more the process side or the personal side i should say what's the impact of to the family to your family because you've got a job you've got a couple of podcasts you're also writing a book you have life and a family and everything like that are you you just sitting at a computer 20 hours a day for a few years (laughs) it feels that way sometimes you know
1: yeah, no, I think I balanced it pretty well, which is why it took so long for one yeah. time. I mean, you know, when you say, oh, I've been working on this book for five years, well, it's not like I was working on it Monday through Friday, oh, okay. eight hours a day. But yeah, I mean, there these last... I mean, I, I don't even... I mean, time has been a blur, but there was definitely a period of months where I spent a lot of time, most of my time on the weekends. But you know the computer was out is out there it wasn't like i was yeah. squirreled away in a room I, I was okay in the same area with them and okay you know i would always i would always you know stop at some point and sure. you know d- d- during that period me and my daughter you know we binged lost we watched oh, the entire wow. series oh. of lost which we ended up it, it turned into the mystery science theater we just ended up yeah. making fun of it the whole time <laughs> <laughs> um i have to say it's not very good but we ended yeah. up watching the whole thing i mean it's one of those cultural it's like it's it's something you know it's a cultural touchstone it's like referenced so much and i had never watched it you know and we've ended up watching breaking bad and stuff i've ended up watching that with her too and you know trying to find shows that sure. that we can watch but um so I yeah, think. uh
0: so much. I mean, you can probably relate to this. We having a wife that's willing to be supportive when we have our side projects like these makes a huge difference. So the fact that your wife was supportive and you were able to still make time for the family and everything—that's that's a big step. By the way, Lost. Tell you a quick quick, quick story. So we—I've only ever watched the first season of Lost, and I mm-hmm. liked it, but I heard that it didn't get any better after that, so we never stuck with it. But we. We used to, um, when my wife and I, we go to Hawaii a lot, about every other year on vacation. And one of the times my wife and I just went by ourselves, it was probably 10 years ago or something like that. And we took the Lost first season on DVD with us and we would hang out at the beach or go sightseeing all day. And then we'd go back to our little room and we'd put on, we'd watch some episodes of Lost. And there were several times where, because it was filmed there and we would be watching a scene and it would be taking place in the exact spot that we had just been earlier that day you know it was yeah. surreal but it was kind of a fun show at first but then i just heard it got crappy after that so i didn't stick with it
1: yeah that reminds me i have a similar story where because i lived in we lived in queens for a couple years mm-hmm. in the early 2000s and uh i remember we walked to the movie theater to see the first spider-man movie with toby mcguire mm-hmm. Right. And as we were watching the movie, we were seeing basically the same neighborhood we had just walked through. No way <laughs> to, to get to the to the theater. Yeah, no way. That's I mean, great. there were scenes that were basically right there. Yeah. Or it looked it looked exactly like those streets were because with all the brownstones and everything, you right. know. Those that was an amazing neighborhood. That's great.
0: What's, so? What's next? I mean, let's wrap it up here. Where, what's the next thing for you?
1: <laughs> I don't know yet i started a book a possible book about the dictators if people know that band but i my idea for the book is called faster and louder from the dictators to manowar because rostabas from the dictators is the guy who started manowar so my idea is to also to have the book be about the dictators and about manowar okay um Rastabas seems to be on board with that but i i you know <laughs> That's yeah. gonna not gonna sell a whole lot of copies. It's like I kinda have right. to balance how much time <laughs> I'm going to put into it uh with you know I mean it's it'll be fun to do and it'll be a sure. great thing to do, but at the same time it's you know I can't put as much effort into it as I put into the cheap trick book. That would probably just not be um That's something that I think
0: is kind of telling about what you're saying, Beach, because Yeah with all the work involved in writing this book, you're already hankering to do it again, as opposed to someone being like, that was just too much work. I can't do another one, but you're ready to do more. I know we've talked about the Def Leppard book that you'd love to write. I don't know if it would ever happen, but that would be sort of a, like a bucket list
1: thing for you. Yeah. Yeah, You mentioned Joe Elliott having the book that that's because I, Stephen Roth facilitated that because I was asking him, how could we get the book to Joe or, or to the Def Leppard camp? Because that's what I would love to do. I would love to write a similar book about Def Leppard that wouldn't be about their whole career, but would just be about the early years of the band. And so they did give the book to Joe with a note for me saying that I would like to do that book. I have, I think it's very <laughs> slim chance that... Mm-hmm. <laughs> anything will come of it but it was worth a shot i mean what the hell yeah it's hard to you can't write i mean i I managed to write this book without rick robin or tom talking to me but you can't, it's really hard to do anything like this if the at least some of the guys from the band aren't gonna participate yeah, yeah. i like to like when i'm making a list of books i would maybe like to write i soul asylum was on that list yeah but I don't know. I, I have to figure out if how I can maybe try to talk to those guys. And another one I was thinking about was Sunny Day Real Estate, Ooh, which I, I wouldn't be so su- I wouldn't be surprised if somebody else had something like that in the works. Hmm. But also, I don't know if the, any of those guys would would participate. Um, yeah. So yeah, it like all the the guys from the Dictators have, are willing to <laughs> to yeah to talk to me. So that could be fun. I mean, I I was just uh it's funny. I cause Cheap Trick played this show in uh was it June of 77 with it was right before they went on the Kiss tour. They played a show in Cleveland with the dictators and the dead boys. Oh great! And ye- years ago, I had sent Cheetah Chrome, the guitar player from the Dead Boys, I had sent him a message on Facebook asking if he remembered that show and i never heard back from him mm. And a couple weeks ago he first saw the message which was from like 2018 or something no i don't know it what? was 2019 he first uh-huh. saw it a couple weeks ago and he wrote back he's like oh i'm probably too late you know and, uh-huh uh, he said he would come on my podcast we haven't oh, cool haven't okay. figured that out yet but then i started thinking about a dead boys book i mean cheetah has written his own book yeah but I think that could be pretty amazing that would be
0: fun a yeah. dead boys book yeah so
1: you know there's a lot of kind of things to think about yeah but and also i've always wanted to write a book about rare albums like just a book yeah. i'm gonna pitch that yeah. to the jawbone i highly doubt they would be maybe i don't know but uh, i i would like to write a book i would even like to do interviews with people from these bands, just some of my favorite obscure albums from over the years, something like that, but I haven't really figured out like a format yet or exact. Yeah, exactly. Or what, how to actually do it? But, um,
0: that was exactly how my podcast was meant to begin. I saw that flame album in a record store, never heard of them. Saw that Jimmy Iovine produced it. It was on RCA. Jimmy Crespo was the guitarist, and I thought, I, "Who are these people? These people have entire lives, entire careers, and dreams built on the album I'm holding in my hand, and no one has ever heard of this." And that was what the spark for the podcast was. But then it just became easier than I thought it would be to get bigger names, and so it just kind of grew from there.
1: You know? Yeah, it's just uh, if you can't get the people to talk to you, yeah, that's the thing. Is I've been trying to get, I've been trying to reach out to some of these this guy adam schmidt that i've ever since i started the podcast i've been trying to talk to him even have his phone number supposedly this guy gave me his phone number and i've texted it and called it i've never heard back from him weird and because his album a literature is one of my favorite things ever and i just and at this point i think i i don't know if i would do it for the podcast or this book i'm talking about if i could talk to him but um, yeah. if I can't get some of these people, I've been trying to figure out how to find some of these people from some of these albums. And uh, right. that'd be fun. I'd read that be book. discouraging. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, um, I wanted to, I mentioned this to you before, but I, I wanted to give my quick background with cheap trick because I find it so odd how many people love cheap trick because in my entire life, prior to meeting all of you, which would have been about 10 years ago or so. I don't think I'd ever once in my entire life had a conversation with anybody about cheap trick. Never once. I remember the flame. I remember, uh, them coming, them being mentioned, obviously on fast times Rougemont high. They don't have a ton of songs that get played on repeat on classic radio. Even, you know, I want you to want me and surrender and dream police. You might hear those once in a great while, I did I do the only memory I have I didn't have a single friend that had a cheap trick tape or record I never had any uh, the only thing I can remember is that I remember a buddy and I being mildly excited to see the video for Don't Be Cruel on Friday Night Videos because the uh, we liked that song and that happened once and so you and I know each other because my brother-in-law is Chris Standish, who's a good friend of yours. And I don't remember if it was, I don't think it was his wedding to my wife's sister. I think it was somebody else's wedding. It was short. It was probably the first time he and I met. And he's a big music guy too. And we're talking about music. And he said, oh, my favorite band is Cheap Trick. And I was that was the first time anyone ever had said anything like that to me. I thought, like, Cheap Trick, what a weird choice. It's as if you said fog hat or molly hatchet or these bands that have been around forever but no one ever really likes or talks about or whatever and from there i started paying more attention and come to find out there's a there's a there are millions of people out there in this quieter corner of the music fandom i don't know building that are devout cheap trick fans. And you're one of them. And I just had no idea any of you even existed until about 10 years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chris, you you know, you met your brother-in-law, one of my best friends since, uh, I met him when I was a sophomore in college and, uh, Chris, it, we have, we, we go on different tangents, but we have the most similar. It definitely, has the most similar taste of anyone I've ever met to me. And also similarly just completely obsessed <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, when I met Chris, his favorite band fluctu has fluctuated from the who to the jam to cheap trick sure. to the wild hearts. But yeah, when I met him, at the, uh, when I met him, we worked in the same play, the Memorial union in Madison when I was in college. And there was another guy who worked there named Craig that we're still friends with who was older than us. And, so both chris and craig were cheap trick was their favorite band of all time they were just maniacal about cheap trick i think what's different like you mentioned molly hatchet and foggat i mean what's (laughs) different about cheap trick is stiff records wanted to put out their first album sub pop put out a single by them i mean they they're one of the only bands from the 70s and 80s that all those 90s bands loved yeah you know yeah they're they're the only band that had it that every hair metal guy and every grunge guy loved i mean you know how i mean kiss had kind of that but kiss was more like a nostalgic thing cheap trick was actually a credibility thing uh you know an an artistic so yeah they i mean that for someone like me because my favorite kind of music is Glam rock from the 70s hard rock from the 70s power pop and punk and then 80s like heavy metal and AOR Cheap Trick is all of that. There's not another band that encompasses All these different genres that I love so much and also they they're funny You know, they're they're kind of satirical. There's so many different elements that make me that make them my favorite band but it all really comes back to the songs. Totally. You know, when I was on the Three Sides of the Coin Podcast recently, they asked me about why I think Cheap Trick, when Cheap Trick toured with Kiss, they really won over all the Kiss fans. And I said, it it's the songs. That's really what it was. It, because the songs are great. Um, You know, they had a funny image, but I was thinking, would Cheap Trick first walk out on stage in front of a Kiss crowd and nobody knows who they are? They probably had to win that crowd over the crowd was probably like, look at these fucking dorks, you know, they probably, they probably had like an uphill battle at first with a lot of the kiss fans, it was the songs. It's how great the songs are. And also, you know, how great the musicianship and, you know, Robin Zander, I mean, anybody's going to be blown away by Robin Zander. So yeah, it's just that combination of talent at all. And creativity and also the the sense of humor yeah they were they were always kind of tongue-in-cheek almost thumbing their noses you know that that's what when they were profiled by rolling stone in 1979 the days that wrote that article talked about the lyrical thumb nosings i think that's what she said <laughs> and then it's i mean you know it, yeah so yeah there's just so many different aspects that they have that cool credibility, but they're also a lot of their music also is going to appeal to like kiss fans and stuff at the so same like, time. Definitely. So.
0: Yeah. How many times have you seen them in concert?
1: Yeah. I've been asked that a lot lately. It's, I don't know an exact number, but it's probably approaching 50. It's definitely more than 40.
0: Really? Oh my yeah.
1: gosh. Wow. I've um, seen them before, And I thought yeah. that was a lot. No. Okay. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. There was was the first time. The first time was the woke up with a monster. Oh, when I was like 21 or something. That was, yeah, that was the first time I saw them. I, I went with Craig. I mentioned Craig who worked with me and Chris and it was at Summerfest in Milwaukee. That was the first time I saw them, but I became a cheap, they became my favorite band at like the perfect time because, uh, in 96 i think is when the box set came out and then 98 was when the book came out reputation is a fragile thing and then 98 is also year they reissued the first three albums and they did the shows where they played three nights in a row and they played the one album each night and i went i went to new york and saw that with chris and craig (laughs) who i've just mentioned and then in 99 i saw their 25th anniversary concert that was released as silver as a cd and a dvd oh sure that, that was in rockford so like that the late 90 and that also you know the when their album came out in 97 which is pretty a huge fan favorite that record they put out in 1997 the self-titled one i mean i that's when i was seeing them a lot and uh it's just a great time for the band when when you know and so that's another part of it so I, they became i they became my favorite band in the mid late 90s right when it was a great time to be a fan yeah, yeah. so that's great
0: yeah. well you're Passion and love comes through in the book, and it's a joy to read because you can feel all that from you. And i got to say, my favorite little bits in the book was when you would ever so slyly just insert little bits of your own personality, your own commentary about something. And um, so it was fun to read those and get a little sliver of you in the story. That was my favorite part.
1: Another thing I tried to do, I don't know if you picked up on it, I didn't do it as much as I wish I could have. And it confused my editor, but I would just drop in jokes from Rick Nielsen, kind of when they fit. <laughs> like, there's one where I talked about he had a beard in a picture that was in the newspaper, and then I just put Rick saying, "I look bad with a beard. I look bad with no beard." Just like, <laughs> there's a few, there's a few instances of that where I just put a joke in. There uh-huh. was one where I mentioned the Kingston Trio, and then I just put in parentheses. Rick Nielsen, some of my best friends are trios, you know?
2: <laughs> if I
1: had a joke that fit, yeah. and my editor asked me about that, and I was just like, well, I think any Cheap Trick fan knows that I'm just... <laughs> I, I I like that. There's just... Sure. There's maybe like five spots in the book where I just have Rick Nielsen crack a joke <laughs> that fits in the context, yeah. and and I just thought it was... I mean, it just entertained it's me, and I thought fans would like it, and it just totally. uh,
0: adds all this color. I love it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really funny book. I mean, when you get to, so, I mean, some of my, like one of my, the, my, my my proudest moments is the book is in the book is what i say speaking of eating parsley do you know what i'm yeah. talking about <laughs> so i mean it's really it's a funny there's yeah. a lot of funny stuff in I here because that. it's a book about cheap trick yeah yeah i mean i'll 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 let people get to that part but that that is a <laughs> what that is a great segue speaking yeah. of eating parsley <laughs> i love it i love that so
0: well good I'm proud of you, Beach. Thanks for uh, being my friend. I love you a lot, and uh, thanks for chatting with me about it and writing such a fun
1: book. I'm grateful. Thank you, John. Yeah, it's um, obviously the best part of the of podcasting is all the great friends that I've made. It really is. It um, is. So it's yeah, it's been. Uh, yeah, we're very fortunate. It.
0: All right, there you have it, Brian J. Cramp. Official uh, author extraordinaire talking about his first major work. This band has no past. I love beige. Uh, I want to close it out with my favorite Cheap Trick song. This is uh, Tonight It's You. I love this song because I feel like it's about four different. It would be the hook of four different great songs all in one song. I. It's a miracle to me. I love this tune. This is kind of the one that made me into a fan. One thing I didn't mention when I was talking about getting to know Cheap Trick is back in the day when I first discovered uh, VH1 Classic, they would show old uh, Cheap Trick videos sometimes. And I heard this one and I remember thinking, that's really good. I really probably should pay more attention to Cheap Trick. Anyway, here we are. Well, thanks, Beach, for for the chat. And folks, the book comes out on Tuesday. And I encourage everyone to get it. Uh, because you love Cheap Trick, because you love BJ, because you love write it, reading great books on rock groups, all those things. Lots of reasons to pick it up. All right? Thanks, folks. We love you.